Thanks for making time to check out the Black Studies podcast. My name is Daniel McNeil, and I'm the Queen's National Scholar Chair in Black Studies at Queen's University. In today's episode, I'm joined by Sally El Said to host a stimulating conversation between Deborah Thomas and Kamari Clark about creative and collaborative knowledge making that explores the connections between the arts, social justice, and decolonial thought. We're excited to be joined today by Deborah A. Thomas, who's the R. Dean Brownlee Professor of Anthropology and the Director of the Center for Experimental Ethnography at the University of Pennsylvania. She's interested in the afterlife of imperialism and the forms of community, subjectivity, and expectations that are produced by violence. She is an award-winning author of books such as Political Life in the Wake of the Plantation, Exceptional Violence, and Modern Blackness. She's also the co-editor of the volume Globalization and Race, co-director and co-producer of the documentary film Bad Friday and Four Days in May, and she's the co-curator of a multimedia installation titled Bearing Witness, which opened at the Penn Museum in November 2017. From 2016 to 2020, she was the editor-in-chief of American Anthropologist, the flagship journal of the American Anthropological Association. And prior to her life as an academic, she was a professional dancer with the New York-based Urban Bushwoman. Kamari Maxine Clark is a distinguished professor in transnational justice and socio-legal studies at the University of Toronto, and an award-winning author who has published nine books and over 50 peer-refereed journal articles and book chapters. For more than 20 years, Professor Clark has conducted research on issues related to legal institutions, human rights and international law, religious nationalism, and the politics of race and globalization. She has spent her career exploring theoretical questions concerning culture and power and detailing the relationship between new social formations and contemporary problems. And in 2021, she received the Guggenheim Prize for career excellence. In addition to her scholarly work, Professor Clark has served as a technical advisor to the African Union Legal Council. After our conversation with Deb and Kamari about their journeys of intellectual discovery inside and outside of academia, we'll be joined by our associate producer, Alador Berekatab, to think about intergenerational communication and how we understand Black studies as a creative social process that is ceaselessly in motion. Hi Deb, hi Kamari, many thanks for joining us today. We're really looking forward to talking with you about your creative and collaborative work inside and outside of academia. We're particularly excited to learn more about your long-standing commitments to planetary humanism and decolonial praxis. And given the importance of framing Black studies and decolonial studies as long work rather than recent work, 
we were wondering if we could start by talking about where you first met. Sure. Um, thank you for having us, Danielle. I'm excited to be part of this conversation. Um, I don't know, Kamari, I could start. I mean, there are, there are a couple different meetings, I think. And um, I guess the, the more academic meeting would have been um, when I was on a postdoc at Wesleyan University in Connecticut at the Center for the Americas. And one of my grad school friends was at the time teaching in anthropology and African-American studies there, Maureen Mann. And, uh, or she had been teaching there and had then moved to LA. But before she moved, she said, oh, you have to know my friend Kamari at Yale. And I don't remember if it was at a dinner party or I went to a talk at Yale that she was giving or you were giving or somebody of mutual interest was giving. But, um, but we met at that point and we were both working on our first books at that time and began conversations, but also started kind of conspiring on um, how to think differently about globalization and race, which ultimately led to maybe a AAA panel, which then fed into what ultimately became an edited volume that we did together. Um, but that's the more contemporary story. There's a, there's a prehistory, which I don't know if you want to talk about, Kamari. <laughs> There, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Devin. Of course, thank you, Daniel, for the invitation and to Sally as well for helping to facilitate the conversation. You, you know, there are always different versions of a story. And I think the conversation today, it's a nice place to start how we met. And and Deb, Deb may not remember this, but of course, when she was a dancer with urban bush women. So this isn't the academic story, but this is the, the kind of cultural story that has now returned to work its way into so much of Deb's current work. And it's that uh, prior to, I think prior to even grad school, she was a dancer with Open Bush Women. And both of us were living in New York in our different worlds. And I went to BAM to, to the Brooklyn um, Art Museum where she performed. And uh, she was quite striking her, her dance, et cetera. I didn't know her. I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know her work, but I was so moved by the, the troupe, the dance troupe and, and the work that I remembered uh, her at that moment. And when I, the next time we met, it actually, I don't think it was in an academic forum, but it was amongst academics playing Scrabble or some board game at a colleague's house. Deb, you might remember that colleague who, I think she was in the history of science. And we hadn't been introduced at that point, but you were really good at the board game. I think it was Scrabble or it was something, but it was clear that board games were your thing and you were just like left, right and center. And then I think we, we approached each other and, um, and we had planned to meet at Yale at, at an event. And that was when the real conceptualization and work and talking really took off. But those early moments were 
were quite interesting. I was both impressed by her dance and the the, the way that she wove the, these questions of, of blackness and pain and, and joy and um, uh, and movement into her art with drumming, etc. And then how phenomenal she was with this board game, which I was losing miserably, which I don't like. But I was like, okay, she's the one. <laughs> and and then we later. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember that, but that must have been um, that must have been Jennifer Tucker's house, maybe. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, but I was thinking because you were drumming in New York during that time, yeah. and didn't you come to one of our legendary parties in the Oh Lola? yes, actually, that's right. That's yeah, right. I think was that, that was maybe the first first. Because I used to live in this okay. loft on Warren and West Broadway before Tribeca was Tribeca. And um, with a former classmate of mine at Brown, and we were sort of, um, I don't know, uh, activism central around ACT UP and a lot of the um, sort of cultural goings on of the time. One of my roommates had started the Click Club and um, we had like fantastic, phenomenal loft parties, dance parties um, during that time that would, um, you know, combine some of that game playing, not Scrabble so much, but celebrities. We played celebrities a lot and um, really good music and dancing. We used to go on the roof and then the roof seemed like it was getting weak. So I think we stopped doing that after a while. But <laughs> but that was that was another time I think when we met. Yes, I do. Yeah, I do remember. So that was pre-anthropology, pre-graduate work, uh, and sort of different circles uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. colliding and engaging. So, <laughs> so yeah. So it's it's wonderful. It's been a wonderful journey in in so many ways. And now to see how Deb's work has over the last five years created this relationship between the work that she was doing when I first met her and the the direction that she really is pushing her ethnographic work and her political and analytic commitments. It's, it's really wonderful to see. It's interesting too, Kamari, because I think your first book, you know, comes more out of your own engagement with the arts and with um, African-based religious and ritual practices in which you had been engaged, you know, in New York um, and has moved more toward the legal, juridical um, aspects of sovereignty, you know, and thinking more broadly about post-colonialism, the forms of sovereignty that are available, useful, the kinds of strategizing around violence. You know, I think we we both continue to address those issues of of sovereignty, of violence, of kind of expressive cultural production and politics and the ways that they uh, intersect with those bigger processes and ideas. But perhaps um, circuitously so. It's like coming coming back around in a circle. You know? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And thank God for the circle, actually, because I, I think in our early days, I mean, both of us, you know, came of age in 
you know, with particular advisors and particular pedagogical traditions and tried to fit our scholarly commitments in the formats and forms and expectations of the academy. And, you know, we were at Ivy League schools. We, uh, in, in many ways, continue to be. And and in, in that context, struggle to make our work legible, but but try to make it legible for the purposes of of um, our academic careers. But uh, alongside that, continue to see ourselves as deeply marginal to an anthropological trajectory and in need of thinking otherwise, in, in need of thinking differently about uh, what our work can contribute and what format it should take and and what the nature of that contribution should look like and and so it's it's nice to have stayed true to to many of those questions and commitments and and now to to think about what is possible and the kind of role and leadership and participation that we can have with the new generation of scholars that are doing similar scholars and artists and and practitioners who are doing and committed to similar kinds of work. I think that's a really important point. And thank you both for sharing some of the challenges that come with bleeding your creative work into your academic practice. Maybe we can build up that and learn a little bit more about the role of dance, music, and movement to your lives as young people and how dance and drumming has informed your approaches to creative and collaborative knowledge making. Sure. Um... Well, I wasn't always a dancer. I was actually a gymnast for most of my life. Um, prior to college, I was a competitive gymnast and we moved around a lot, but the one constant was that we would always find my team, you know, before even buying a house usually. <laughs> so, um, so I went to Brown doing gymnastics and after my first year, um, just felt that you know, I was getting too old to be flipping on a four-inch-wide piece of wood four feet in the air and, and just kind of wanted to know what other people did in their afternoons and weekends. And um, so decided to quit gymnastics and then tagged along with one of my roommates to a dance class um, to stay in shape and just, like, utterly fell in love. I mean, we had always had... You know, with the with the gymnastics team, you always have like one day a week of some basic ballet, you know, like just to make sure you don't look like a complete klutz, you know, in, in the dancier parts of the floor exercise routine or beam. But it wasn't serious. And um, the class that I went to was a jazz class who that was taught by Joe Bowie, who at the time was a junior and he was somebody who had uh, started dancing in college and just was phenomenal, you know, and sort of did it obsessively and ultimately moved to New York and became part of the Paul Taylor Company. But when I realized that he had started dancing recently, I said, oh, okay, I have to, I have to know everything about what you can tell me about this because I love it. And I, that's, this is what I want to do, you know? And so he told me about all the different teachers and all the different classes that I could take and that I should audition for this company and do that and thus and such. And, and so that's what I did um, pretty obsessively for the rest of my time at Brown and also theater. 
and just did everything, you know, did ballet, did modern, did jazz, did African, did Caribbean. And then when I moved to New York, similarly, just continued taking classes everywhere. At that time in the kind of downtown dance scene, those of us who were also interested in African dance, there was one kind of institutional space where everybody met and that was Leslie Dance and Skate. And it actually was also a roller skating school. Um, and everybody who sort of arrived in New York um, taught at Leslie. Um, and that's, you know, everything from Pat Hall Smith's Haitian class to the various African teachers who would come through. Um, Sabar became like the craze, you know, for a while, um, this particular form of dance. Um, anyway, so we all kind of knew each other. Brazilian dance was very popular at that time, Afro-Brazilian dance. And so I became really interested in um, how artists and dancers in particular were expressing a politics through the work that they were doing on stage. And that's ultimately what led me to leave urban bushwomen and go to graduate school because with bushwomen we had started doing things that we at the time called community engagement projects where we would do sort of longer term work in a community with different grassroots organizations using dance and music as tools for other things other forms of social change and consciousness raising and skill building and community development and basically whatever the organizations with whom we were working wanted to do. So we would figure out a specific kind of curriculum with them um, to try to help them achieve whatever it is they were trying to achieve. Um, those, uh, those projects have now moved in a different direction with the company. They now have a summer institute Urban Bushwoman has a summer institute where they're working with other dancers from around the country who already do or want to do that kind of work. So they're training people now how to do this more in their own communities. Um, but it was always something, a way of working that I loved and the theater stuff that I did at Brown with Lights and Reason was also that based on a research to performance methodology, uh, working with different members of the community um, in sort of doing creative work. So um, I wanted to study that, you know, we were doing that at a very grassroots level with Bushwomen. And I knew that dancers had been very involved in the anti-colonial movement in Jamaica and elsewhere, but Jamaica is where my family's from. So it just seemed like it was uh, a way for me to be able to bring together um, my professional experiences, but also the stuff I love to do and to sort of think about it, you know, in a, in a deeper way and to see what the impact of that kind of work is and how, you know, how, how that might change over time. Um, the different factions of people who are involved in that kind of work critically also moving it in different directions, the arguments that happen, what comes out of those arguments, which institutions fall apart, which ones continue, how they change with different generations. You know, that those are the kinds of questions that took me to graduate school, um, thinking that when I was done, I was going to open a community arts center in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. 
Um, I didn't know that one went to graduate school to become a professor. I sort of found that out overhearing a conversation in the elevator during my second year of grad school. And um, thought, oh, what's that? And in fact, when I had told, um, we, we were doing a project in a community engagement project in New Orleans, and one of our collaborators was John O'Neill. Um, with Junebug Productions. And when I told him I had gotten into grad school, he said, okay, so on your tombstone, you want it to read, she was a great professor. And I was like, what? What do you mean? You know, no, not that. I want to do something else. He was like, okay, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, I I, I didn't think I wanted to do that. And, um, but in my Last year when I was writing my dissertation, there was this job ad that just seemed like it was written for me. They were interested in somebody who did work on cultural production in the Caribbean and the arts and, you know, the intersections between creative practice and politics. And so I applied and I got it and it tracked me into a more academic situation. But now that I've been able to build a different version, I guess, of the Community Arts Center in Brooklyn, which is the Center for Experimental Ethnography at Penn. Not so grassroots, but nevertheless a hub for people who are interested in or have some kind of creative practice as the basis of their research method. Um, You know, I feel like it sort of comes back around. And in the film work that we've done, you know, which is the way my creativity goes these days, sort of installations and and, and film. Um, you know, somebody once suggested to me that they could tell that I was a dancer because of the way I edited. And I hadn't really thought of that before. Um, but then when I when when I, you know, thought more about what that person had said, uh, I sort of looked at it and realized, yeah, I guess what I'm interested in when I'm editing is um, gestures and kind of embodied practice and the ways that those gestures and that embodied practice expresses something beyond the words that people are saying and something that can move us toward a different way of thinking about the political and, and also can um, acknowledge and honor the kinds of affective dimensions of politics that really circulate in our communities through embodiment, you know, and that people can experience in a kind of embodied way. So I guess that would be how I would address that question. Wow, you learn something new all the time. Uh, (laughs) So thanks for sharing that. In my case, uh, so I, of course, grew up in Toronto and spent the, the, from 17 on in Montreal for four years and then moved to the States where when I moved to New York and it was at that moment that um, that our lives collided uh, or interacted but um, but prior to that I guess in my case I it wasn't necessarily drumming but sports that um, moved me that shaped me in, in so many ways, but different kinds of sports. I wasn't a gymnast or a drum dancer, but I, I was, um, you know, I played soccer, competitive soccer. I played basketball, competitive basketball, point guard, of course, with my height. 
and and then later in my life played tennis um competitive tennis and and now you know of course in my 50s i i play two or three times a, day, a week but uh, and far from competitive but 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 um, sports, whether it was, and then I used to run, run um, half marathons and cross country. And, but I, I grew up in an immigrant household, my family being from Jamaica and Cuba, and in a, in a household in Toronto where, you know, there weren't black kids in our school. Um, when we got to high school, in our elementary school, when we arrived in high, high school, we started the first African-Canadian club so that we could play dominoes together. <laughs> and then from dominoes, it rolled into, uh, you know, blackness and black history and anti-apartheid. Um, but it, for me, it was um, a context in which my parents didn't value sports because felt that black people were streamed into sports. And so, um, so I actually felt quite privileged to be able to play because it wasn't something that was valued yet. I made, I made the time for, for that. Unlike these days where I force my kids to participate in sports and they're like, mom, you know, do I have to, I don't like tennis anyway, take me out of this. But, um, so in, so it was, it was sports, but what I've come to see is, is the ways that philosophies of sports have very much shaped the, the way that I live and think about my life. So if you think about tennis and the, you know, the contexts around the baseline and guarding your baseline, or when you, so there are times in life when you end in tennis where you make a point and that point doesn't actually count towards something substantive, but it makes you feel good because you gained that point but you might very well lose the game. Um, and and there, were a, 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 there are a lot of philosophical questions ar around sport and the body that very much shaped how I came to understand my life. And so eventually, um, so I played, I, I guess, uh, varsity basketball for the first year. And from then, um, by the second year of university, moved into student politics and, and then ran for the co-president of the student association. And it, it was a time of anti-apartheid. And so we worked towards sanctions and other things. So I left the kind of and, and bracketed for a moment the sport as recreational, not at that time seeing it as philosophical, not at that time seeing the, the the logic of sport and the body as valuable because of the, the household in which I was raised and instead saw it as simply recreational. Okay, that's enough of that. I'm going to be political now and um, I'm going to, you know, work on other things that can advance uh, people in this world. And so I bracketed it for a long time only to return to these questions of sport and the body um, uh, and sport not just as recreation but but the, the sport as a way to think about philosophies of life. Uh, once I moved to New York my interest in drumming was um, I played violin in high school and in elementary school and I left the violin when I was learning to become black, right? And I say that facetiously um, because, you know, I, I, 
realized that, okay, I can play great Mozart, but do I know anything about African rhythms or this other, or reggae or this other kind of music that is really calling me? And so I stopped playing and bracketed that too. And it's only later in my life that I came to really think about how to reconcile the, the, the early formations uh, whether it was sport or whether it was classical music or different forms of music that were part of my early uh, years with the the nature of the political and how we how we invigorate and and rethink the the political in whatever form it takes and and so for me drumming took that form and the um, drumming was about blackness. It was about Africa. It was about the, you know, this different syncopation with a past that that might be knowable through music and and through drumming. I emerged and entered a world of religious practitioners, and that was, as Deb said, the content of my first book, trying to understand the the making of tradition and the 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 challenges when there's significant innovation in that making. Uh, so the articulations around women not being appropriate drummers was often the, the language and the dissuasion uh, in the 80s when more and more women were starting to drum, including playing bata drums, but certainly conga drums uh, in North America. And, and we were seeking these spaces of legitimacy through which to continue to drum and not to simply assume that it was only men that could play these African drums. And, and so that led me to a whole world of understanding these Yoruba practices and, and the forms of drumming and the forms of ritual and the ways that tradition was understood and reimagined. And, and, and also led me to think about these different logics, uh, you know, using divinatory shells and Kauri and Ifa as ways of interpreting the past, but also predicting the future. Uh, and, and in that work, I was certainly interested in knowledge formation uh, and the legitimacy of that formation and what the preconditions were for that knowledge formation. And in, in many ways, that earlier work fits nicely into some of the, the current work around uh, rationality and logic and these different knowledge formats, what they are, what they look like, how do we recognize theorizing through proverbs and through other ways of, of speaking of and expressing one's self in the world? How do we make that legible and, and relevant in, in the classroom and outside of the classroom? And so the, so from from sport to, uh, to, to drumming to a, a different kind of academic project that allows us to think about knowledge in, in these ways really was, was central to my own journey. It's so interesting, um, as you say, Kamara, these things that you don't know about somebody you know pretty well, you know, because um, I didn't know you ran track. Of course, I knew you played tennis. And I knew about the basketball. I didn't know about the violin. And I also have a classical piano background that I dropped going to um, college as well to sort of 
explore those other dimensions of my background and my life and to to think about what does it mean to be black as you know a light-skinned um, mixed-race girl you know who grew up mostly outside of Jamaica and um, the anti-apartheid movement also was I think um, everybody's um, portal into the political at college during those years um, and was something that we also became involved in. But I was really interested in what you said about the drum being the thing that led you to these other forms of knowing and other rationalities. I guess I feel that way also about dance. It was through dance that I entered those other spheres of religious practice and ritual that um, demonstrated also other forms of relation, right? Other ways of reckoning relatedness and community. Um, and, um, you know, all those other forms of knowledge, including medicinal knowledge mm -hmm. and sort of different ideas about health and wellness um, that I still draw from today, for sure. Um, and that sort of opened these other worlds um, that I think we continue to investigate through our academic research, but also the ways that that research articulates with uh, community building practices that both of us are involved in. It was nice to hear about that. Yeah, and it's, it is interesting that, I mean, yes, we're, we're similar ages and so generationally we, we share a lot, but it is interesting, you know, coming from middle-class backgrounds, immigrant backgrounds in some respects, the what goes in the closet for us as we come into you know a different consciousness of self uh, and so in in my case what goes in that portal become is the classical it's mozart it's the you know it's all of those things that immigrant parents insisted should form us uh and perhaps for a moment it gets bracketed and it's it it it, it doesn't enter the space of that which is blackness, you know, and it's mm -hmm. it's um, like I mean, even for me, I was a triple athlete of the year. So in grade eight when I graduated, and then in grade twelve and thirteen, and and it it was something to be celebrated, right? That that was you know this is who I am. When I go to my old high school, I see my pictures on on the wall. Yet in those years, no one knew anything about that. I probably didn't even talk about it because it was like, oh, that's recreational. That, that goes in the closet. What we yeah. have to do is advance social change. We need to think about the political. Yeah. We need to think about blackness in a particular way, elevate you know, the kind of discourses that were popular and that um, sought to advance uh, a, a way of thinking about where we can go from here. Mm -hmm. And in your case, bracketing classical piano and and those things and and so I guess part of it is well where are we now and and you know how, where do we where are we moving with the our recuperation of of the past and of self and and in the, and in the ways that we are you know advancing a particular a more radical framework for um, what is permissible and you know what is hybrid and and complex about everyone's backgrounds. And, and what is not. I think so many, uh, so many of us sort of fall backwards into anthropology, 
Yeah. <laughs> so many Black anthropologists have come to the field from some other form of yes. work, whether it's activist work or it's artistic work. And and somebody says something about it, and you're like, oh, I've never heard of that before. Let me look into it, you know? And and then you realize, I think it hit, I think what heals people or what healed me is the method. You know, oh, this is a form of learning that is participatory and embodied and collaborative. And that's based on like hanging out and doing stuff with people, which is what I felt like I had been doing all along as a dancer. And so I was like, oh, there's a word for this. And, and there's actually a field called this. And this like is something that I could do where they study things like me, you know, in my experience, you know, my first class with Connie was a class on transnational migration, you know, like Caribbean migration to New York. And I was like, wow, people study this stuff, you know, and I was like mind blown, you know. And I think then when, you know, there's this moment that we come into it that we say, oh, this is a thing that is capacious enough to encompass what I do and who I am. And then you take the theory classes and the history and you're like, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute, you know, and I think it comes back around and then you sort of understand the colonial dynamics of the field and how it was um, built on certain forms of scientific racism. And, and then you think, oh, no, maybe this isn't for me. I mean, I considered transferring into a different field of study, and I'm sure many people do. Um, but I ended up staying. And I always tell my students now that you have to just suspend disbelief. You know, just like learn it, get through it. There are actually very interesting um, dynamics in that history that are worth parsing um, and understand that, you know, at every moment that, um, you know, a French anthropologist was articulating what we read now as a racist sentiment in their work in Africa, there were Black people who were countering each statement, every ethnography, you know, um, to, you know, back to even Frederick Douglass, right, who is addressing Morton, Samuel Morton, and, and beyond. So, you know, meeting those scholars and becoming familiar with their work, I felt like, okay, there's a lineage of Black anthropologists that has always been critical of the kind of dominant um, directions in the field and also the dominant reason for being in the field, which is to learn about the quote-unquote other, right? There has always been a group of scholars who have been critical of this and who have attempted to reformulate the discipline into a place that actually can advance our needs, desires, wants, um, agendas, etc. And, um, you know, have reformulated its core strategies and principles all the way along. So I think, for me, that was always inspiration to be able to stay and in those moments when one could still be frustrated about, um, you know, certain legacies uh, of imperialism uh, that remain in the field and perspectives that continue to marginalize um, the voices of Black, Indigenous, and other anthropologists of color. Um, and, you know, 
sort of allow us to keep moving in the directions that are important to us. Kamari and I have been working together on a series of webinars and workshops, including uh, writing workshops and uh, a kind of symposium stroke workshop that will happen this December in South Africa, um, coming out of uh, an article, the year in review article that Ryan Jobson wrote at the end of my tenure as editor of American Anthropologist that Kamari had asked him to to do on um, letting anthropology burn. And so we have been thinking about that. I, I, um, I gave a talk at at, I say at, but I mean virtually, at um, Indiana University, and the students had been reading that essay, and um, you know were you know sort of uh, excited about the essay and really kind of mobilized, and and they said, well, okay, so yes, maybe we should burn anthropology down. But if we're if if the house is on fire, what do you grab as you're running out the door? And I think that really sparked a conversation between me and Kamari about well, what are the important aspects of our practice that are meaningful to us and to others as anthropologists, and in what ways do we understand those as the basis of a kind of differently formulated discipline. I don't know if you want to talk more about that. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, um, I think it's a, a really exciting moment around thinking about this theme of letting anthropology burn, or at least thinking about disciplines themselves, and that the idea of letting isn't to burn them, it is that they themselves are imploding. And with the agitation and engagement and rethinking that is organic to to them, this is actually happening anyway. And the decolonial move, the de- decolonial um, formations that we're seeing all over, really are, are exciting and important, and in many ways are invigorating some of the work that we're doing with this radical humanism initiative. And and so we have these these draft principles that have benefited from the input of many, including the, the thinking of the students at Indiana, as well as the thinking of, of many of our colleagues. And one of the draft principles, of course, starts by talking about a commitment to humanism and humanism as a praxis of equality, connection, and becoming. And, and part of it is to, to, to recognize that um, humans and non-humans are entangled, that, that the human isn't the central component of existence in in this world and that that there's nothing knowable about the human in and of itself and and that the presumption that uh, all knowledge that's generated is reducible to cultural units or reducible to data is itself flawed and so the so much of the work that we're doing presumes a different way of thinking about being and becoming and in, in, in many ways, it contravenes much of what we've been taught in the anthropological and social science tradition, uh, including, in, in, in fact, um, uh, in the humanities, even, uh, in some aspects of the humanities. And so we're, we are trying to, 
uh, advance a, a range of other core principles that we would we would want to keep as the house is burning and others have to do with multimodality and Deb might want to talk about that a bit more. Um, there are questions about quantification, so the, the and, and science and this move toward algorithms and algorithms that shape our world and the importance of centering lived experience rather than simply over-representing science. And, and there, there's a tension. Uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic still, and we also know the relevance of, of science and, and documentation of people's lives. And at the same time, we know the relevance of the very deep, how critical it is to be in tune with people's lived experience and have that shape how we understand and think about these macro formations. Uh, and and in that light, one of our other principles has everything to do with connecting these macro with micro formations. So centering lived experience alongside these multiscalar formations that are at play and thinking big, uh, but doing that in a way that allows us to also recognize when we've moved too far. So at what time do traditional methods, are they appropriate for centering lived experience and at what time uh, do we need to exceed those microformations in order to see larger questions at play or larger issues at play. And then the one of the final themes that's part of the conversation around these principles has to do with collaborative knowledge production and, and taking seriously the the argument that that in fact there there is a, a kind of knowledge extraction that's endemic to ethnographic as well as social science knowledge production and you know we go elsewhere we ask people questions we document their stories of their lives and we come back and analyze them and lay claim to them and, and publish them as our own intellectual property and instead, the part of the, the argument that's that's part of the ways that we're trying to work with others in the, the rethinking uh, has to do with an insistence on collaborative knowledge production and not just putting someone's name on a paper and saying that we co-authored it, but in fact, in organic ways, thinking about the nature of knowledge production itself, uh, recognizing people's stories as legitimate and as theoretical and as as fundamental to even the way that we think and are making sense of the things that we learn them in their lives. And so those those draft principles, including multimodality that Deb, with her leadership of the American anthropologists, really, really advocated different ways of a- approaching anthropological and ethnographic work, including social science work, that, that insists on other preconditions. Uh, for the work that we do and for the results that we, we that emerge from them. Yeah, um, I think, um, you know, film and anthropology really grew up together, right? Um, and so film technology in many ways was always a part of ethnographic research and representation um, in ways that were often um, uh, just sort of um, descriptive, representational, and um, and often extractive as well. 
And I think, you know, there's, there have long been arguments about the role of film in anthropology. Um, does the anthropologist direct the action? Should the camera just be documenting? Can you ever say that a camera can produce an unmediated experience of um, something going on in the community? And you know, I think visual anthropologists have thought about these questions for a long, long time and have, have really worked to reformulate what that relationship is between film and ethnographic research. And um, for a long time, uh, argued people like Faginsberg, who trained me, and others um, argued that that there needed to be a visual anthropology section within the American Anthropologist, that journal, um, as there was a biological anthropology section, cultural anthropology section, linguistic anthropology section, and an anthropological archaeology section. And so visual anthropology sort of popped up as one of those sections. And um, was something that when I took over editorship of, the, of that journal in 2016, that I just wanted to broaden to make room for other forms of artistic practice beyond film because people were doing anthropological and ethnographic work in so many other media, whether it was photography or creative writing or sound, sound studies, performance, um, and that, or even gaming. You know, that there should be space for thinking about these different kinds of forms. For me in my own work, I know that usually what guides the form that it is going to be expressed in has to do with audience and um, who I want to engage with a particular aspect of work and what I would like it to do in the world for that and with that audience. Um, so that's sort of how I think about my own practice. Like when is something an experimental film that's non-narrative and non-linear? You know, when is something uh, a somewhat more narrative-based film? When is something an installation? When is something potentially a performance? You know, I think those questions come up and for me, they get answered in collaboration with people that I'm doing research with about, um, you know, what form should this take then based on um, the kind of way we want it to live in the world. Um, and I know that that's a concern for others as well. Um, and that people are, are doing really important reformulations of visual media, whether it's film or photography, um, specifically to disturb that kind of representational aspect and to think more through the languages of refusal and abstraction and opacity, um, terms that have come out of Caribbean studies, Black studies more broadly, um, in really thinking about what it is that we're producing and who it's for um, and you know what people are supposed to be getting out of that and to create a more collaborative relationship in that process. Um, so that's sort of the basis of the turn from visual anthropology to multimodal anthropologies, plural, 
and also at the Center for Experimental Ethnography um, that I direct at Penn, which is a hub for students and faculty across the schools, including design and the med school and the law school, people who have some kind of creative practice uh, that grounds their research process. Um, and, you know, many universities are now interested in uh, multimodal work, often as a form of dissemination of research results. And I think that's fantastic, but it's not really what we do, or it's not our primary orientation. For us, multimodal practice really transforms the way we do research. It transforms the way uh, we build knowledge. It transforms the way we teach. It certainly transforms the relationships that we have with students, graduate and undergraduate, and with interlocutors in our research process. And ultimately, my hope, and I think the hope of all of the people I work with at the center, is that it transforms the university and the space of the university, of the spaces it occupies, its relationships with the communities in which universities sit and also through which our research travels. So we really see multimodal work as a, a kind of upending of um, the pursuit of transparent abstractionist knowledge um, and instead toward this more radically humanist framing of uh, learning about ourselves and each other and a learning that can be oriented toward something you know something that people wanted to do in the world i i like what you said deb and i it it it's probably also worth thinking about how that happens though. So the aspiration is the the transformation of our institutions, the the we've been talking a little bit in the past about the the kind of guidelines that are necessary. So one of the challenges of course is well, how does this happen? You know, what is what what should the structure of a journal look like? Um, so people have turned to digital storytelling where there's a QR code in a paper journal or online in a journal and you use your phone and you scan it and you enter another world of in engagement. Um, so the structure of journals, the way that we evaluate uh, people's work uh, and the way we, you know, the, the fact that it requires different measures that in tenure cases and in other cases, that the ways that things get reviewed um, need to be thought of differently and we need different guidelines for that. That, that you know, there's a tremendous amount of work that still has to go into how a different modality requires a different set of tools for making sense of it, for evaluating it, for um, rendering it legible in some cases for those who can't see beyond the form that they're used to. And, and some of us have continued to talk about syllabi projects that involve, um, that really take seriously the challenge that when people are trained in the 1970s or 80s or 90s, and they're, they're teaching in an area of expertise that, that in which they pursued their PhD, it's very difficult then to ask them to teach texts that 
are new and foreign to their experience? What does it take for that to happen? You know, what kind of time do people need? And do we demand that people take in order to uh, rethink their pedagogy, the, the curricula, the, the curricular requirements, the canons that have formed that are that are being whittled away? Uh, what kind of retraining do you know, 60 odd year olds and 50 odd year olds or people that came of age in the 60s and 70s and 80s need in order to really expand their thinking about the world and their what they render legible and what they don't and what gets occluded. And so much of the, the work ahead and I think, you know, what Deb describes and, and the aspirations that are in place or that we're seeing in many institutions um, as well as outside of our academic institutions but in a lot of different places represent an aspiration the challenges that in in our university institutions um, they still remain belittled and the, the the roadmap for getting there uh, is elusive at best and so i think a, a tremendous amount needs to be done around some of that work uh, but, you know, just to end, because I'm now conscious of time, we're um, running out of time, but the, um, I'm, I'm really um, enheartened by our students' generations that are coming through, that are making demands on curricular demands that, that are really moving the needle and that are, that are brave and that are bold and, and that we desperately need. And I think those of us who are tenured and in our institutions need to continue to do the work that we do around setting new guidelines around engagement. And, um, and, and I think this is the work ahead. And Daniel, I don't know if, if in your experience at Queens, this is also the, the work that, that you're doing through the new center and, and the new um, structures underway, but I'm thrilled to see a black studies department in a Canadian university at Queens and, and some of the initiatives that are undergoing that you're undergoing there. Yeah. Thanks Kamari. Thanks Deb. This has been such a thrilling conversation. Um, so grateful that you've been so generous with your time and how you've invited us to think about journeys of intellectual discovery within, outside, and beyond the university. And I agree with you, Kamari. It's so exciting to be part of a program in a Canadian institution that is engaging with these questions around the complexities and the capaciousness of global Black communities. We're striving, we're struggling to consider how we can make modernity and coloniality visible, audible, and legible to diverse audiences. And different generations. Um, obviously, we do that as teachers, as we're thinking about how to develop compelling classes and engaging discussion in our seminar rooms. But it's been important and critical and a wonderful learning opportunity for me to also think about how we can develop venues like this Black Studies podcast at Queen's 
to take humanities research out of the classroom and the university presses and into broader public realms for discussion, debate and examination across multiple media platforms. And as you've both been talking about how we can address the decadence of disciplines that defensively police their boundaries, I've been thinking about students in a Black Atlantic class who are grappling with CLR James's uh, principled opposition to that defensive posture around the policing of boundaries and his significant reminder that ordinary people do not need an intellectual vanguard to tell them what to do or what to say. And I'm also so grateful that you've opened up space for us to think about the power of music, the power of movement and the power of sport. And it really helps me to think differently and think again with CLR James, particularly in his wonderful work, Beyond the Boundary, when he talks so movingly and powerfully about how he learned, not just from reading novels and reading books, but also watching out over, in, over his backyard into the cricket field and seeing how people played cricket and learning how they came to understand the sense of fair play. And maybe to build on that sense of learning and radical openness to sport, to music, as well as to words and to books, we were wondering if you might be open to considering a final question. What are you currently reading and what are you currently listening to? You put a smile on my face. Uh, I was one. I was thinking <laughs> uh, about the professional and the personal in a totally different direction. <laughs> well, on a per personal, I guess there is no distinction between the personal and the the professional necessarily, as we've shown today, and that that often it's really the lens that we see, but it, it doesn't mean that there's a distinction between them. Um, but in the spaces that you don't see, of course, you know, I, I don't hang out with you all, unfortunately, in the midst of this pandemic enough. And because of that, um, you don't see that on weekends, you know, I still listen to my Bob Marley <laughs> and I still, um, Les Nubiennes is one of my famous, my favorite women's music um, groups. Uh, I love um, Anthony Hamilton. His, his piece passed me over. I will play that 10 or 12 times, one after the other, for an hour. <laughs> um, uh, I love the, the playfulness of something like Jerusalem, that, that, that hip uh, song that uh, has gone viral around the world and come with all sorts of dance moves, etc. Um, you know, I really love that. Phyllis Hyman, I listen to a lot of Phyllis Hyman. And then in, in general, a lot of jazz. So in terms of the musical, you know, when I close my doors and I'm just sort of sitting around and doing work, it's unfortunately not the music of my childhood of playing Mozart or <laughs> Beethoven. 
but it's it's a lot of these other uh, musics by racialized people and the life and the, the, the challenges and the, the toiling and the joy of, of our lives. In terms of books, you know, I've returned to, to Canada in terms of my academic location in, uh, in Toronto, and I've really loved the, the kind of work that's coming out of Black Canada today, the and the, the kind of distinctions in relation to the U.S. and U.S. Blackness, but the, 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 the bold uh, interventions that are being make, made that are uh, in relation to U.S. work. And so the work of people like Dion Brand and uh, as well as, um, well, Christina Sharp is here now in, in Toronto, but was in the States before that. But the 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 uh, working reading more um, rereading Wild Seed so Octavia Butler's work um, and teaching it in my classes um, and and you know so many more new works around Black Canadian studies and um, and the quest to to think about what is distinctive and different that that articulates a space outside of. Uh, black American life and Black American scholarly life. My, my list is shorter since I'm reading manuscripts right now. I agreed to do way too many manuscript reviews for presses. But um, the book that is on my um, desk that has been opened and closed and opened and closed just because I'm like waiting to get at it is. Um, Adrian Marie Brown's Emergent Strategies. So I'm excited to delve in. Um, and listening, uh, you know, sort of whatever is ambient these days. You know, I, I feel like I get attuned to new music through my kids all the time. So, and sometimes, uh, you know, because they don't listen to the radio the way that we did, and so they don't know like i mean they know what's hip and now but they also do a lot of um i mean almost archival work in their musical practice like they because they get those if you liked this you would like this you know so there's been a lot of frank ocean playing in the house in the car these days um so sweet life has been on everybody's tongue for the last three weeks or so even though I think that song is probably about 10 years old. Yeah, you know, when I'm in Jamaica, I get to hear whatever what's whatever is new and hip. And Coffee was just here last week performing in Philadelphia, which is always a treat. Um, and that's sort of my popular culture of the moment. What a great conversation. I was fortunate enough to be a colleague of Kamari's for a couple of years and to see how she developed and transformed a program in global and international studies at Carleton. But I hadn't met Deb before, and it was a pleasure to learn more about the journeys of intellectual discovery and their approaches to editing, their approaches to research and their approaches to activism. 
I particularly liked the openness with which Deb and Kamari talked about the role of art and the role of activism in inspiring their creative and intellectual lives as young people. And I also found it quite inspiring to learn about how they're thinking about making room for visual culture and gaming in the centers, journals, and hubs that they direct and edit. And how they're not just thinking about how they were activists as young people, but how they're taking inspiration from the activism and dynamism of young people. What stood out to you, uh, Sally Alador, from the conversation? For me personally, you know, when listening back to the conversation, um, I think there was a lot in regards to the intersectional elements that affirms what Black identity. You know, the notion of Blackness and how it does not represent one consistent lens or one consistent persona. So I loved how they talked about, you know, the way that drums, for example, for Kamari um, and dance for Deborah, you know, it led them to different forms of knowing and different forms of knowledge. You know, when talking about, let's say, dance leading to those various spheres of religious practices, um, or transforming into other forms of knowledge, like medical knowledge, health and wellness, as she mentioned, it was it so beautifully encompasses what the intent of Black Studies is. You know, sports transitioning to drumming, transitioning to different academic projects. It allows us to think about, you know, how knowledge in these sort of ways just affirms the beauty of the power of lived experiences that inspire academic pursuits and how, you know, our lived experiences kind of shape our interests and then then to shape our academic interests and our academic passions as well. So for me, it kind of perfectly encompassed, you know, what I envisioned Black Studies is, which is really nice to see. Yeah, I really, I completely agree with that. Um, I think their, like, I was going to say that as well, like their conversation really inspires this idea that has come up a few times in our, the entire kind of scope of this podcast so far of Black studies transcending the borders and boundaries of academia, and that what Black studies is to its core is considering all the means that Black people live, learn, cope, and express themselves, and bringing that full range of emotion and experiences to your practice. And I love that they have shown through their practices of drumming and of dancing that you're never practicing in a vibe vacuum you're practicing as a complete person and you're bringing those kind of experiences and knowledges into your work um so yeah no i love that i love that idea of thinking about learning about the force of personality in society thinking about the effective dimensions of our work and ensuring that a range of emotions, a range of experiences are recognized, valued, showcased, and given the opportunity to travel to, so that they are shared, so that they are um, made available for other people to recycle them, to take possession of them, and to make them relevant for the local and political concerns. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'd love to hear from you as we move forward with the podcast, as we continue to think and listen. 
with these amazing academics, with these intellectuals, and with these activists. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and contact us with your questions, comments, and ideas for future episodes. We take seriously the idea that this is an ongoing conversation. And we're also on Instagram at Black Studies Podcast and can be reached at the Black Studies Podcast at gmail.com. We'll be dropping another episode next week and hope you have a wonderful week filled with joy.